What have we learned from the past that helps us make sense of American politics in the present and know what to expect in the near future? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we talk about politics in America, past, present, and future from a writer with a unique perspective. We're going to play for you a conversation we had with Jack Moscow. Jack is a co-founder of the Writers Collective in New York. He has an extensive background in management training, strategic planning, and political consulting. His commentary on political events was previously posted in bloggingforutopia.com and Dispatches from Utopia. He's the author of Why Not Utopia, a political platform in search of a party, and writes bi-weekly untrammeled and entertaining blogs, Nobody Asked Me But I'll Tell You Anyhow, and Dispatches from the Planet Utopia. All clever titles. Yes, they are. Here's our interview with Jack Moscow. Jack Moscow, thank you so much for being a guest on The Hub for Important Ideas. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I know. We really appreciate you coming up from the city and all. It's just great to have you here. So, Jack, tell us a little bit about your background and tell us when you were a a card-carrying communist back in the day. Well, my background goes back 90 years, so I'll try to keep it short. (laughs) Uh, Good luck. uh, I'm not even sure if I ever signed a party card, because by the time I joined, the repression was already there. I know that I was in the party when I was in college, and that was 1947 to 49. So I probably joined somewhere around 1948, making me maybe 18, maybe 19. And I know that I officially left the party in 1953. I got called up actually by one of the minor House on America committees, a guy named Kit Clardy from Michigan. I had actually left the party emotionally long before that, but it was interesting. I couldn't literally break under assault. Like I had to stay there while all of my fellow comrades were still fighting. And in a strange way, being called up by the committee liberated me. It's like, okay, that's it. Now I can quit. Wow. And you had said something to us about leaving the party or leaving the the church, as you called it. And I take it you were you were raised in a a household. Yeah. What happened was my parents couldn't afford to keep me during the um depression. So when I was three years old It'd be like, what, 1932? They sent me to live with my aunt and uncle who were up in Rockland County. They had a small farm, and she ran a boarding house. As it happens, they were members of the Communist Party. And what I tell everybody is they were atheists, but I was actually raised in the church because the Communist Party was a church. We had our sacred texts. We had our infallible leaders, Stalin, Lenin, Marx, whoever. And we had our people who hunted down heresy. And it was was a church. 
I didn't realize it at the time. One of the things that did is it made me very, I don't want to use a sympathetic, but understanding of why people raised in the right-wing church, the church John Birch Society or whatever, it's like the Jesuits said, if I have you for the first six years of your life, I'll have you forever. So it's very, very difficult when you're raised that way. Now, interestingly enough, it wasn't difficult for me to leave the Communist Party because I didn't have to give up my ideals. The Communist Party believed in racial equality, economic equality, peace on earth, happiness for everybody. So I didn't have to give up those ideals. I just had to give up the Communist Party, which wasn't living up to them. In fact, it was making a mockery of them. If I can kid around for a moment, we had a guy named Earl Browder. He was the head of the party. And this is after the, after the war, World War II. And he was literally taking the party out of its revolutionary concepts into becoming a social democratic party. And some guy in France named Jacques Duclos wrote an article uh, straight out of Stalin in the Comintern saying that this was heresy. And they threw Browder out. And my laughing comment is, on Monday, we were all singing, Browder is our leader, we shall not be moved. On Tuesday, we were singing, Forster is our leader, we shall not be moved. And on Wednesday, I was singing, these guys are crazy, I got to get out of here. But the difference between, say, my breaking with the party and somebody was raised in, say, the John Birch Society or by a Ku Klux Klan parent is they had to give up their entire belief system. They couldn't just say, okay, I'm going to quit this. Everything they had been taught, they had to now believe was a lie, and they had to relearn from scratch a whole new way of thinking. So that's very difficult. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. I never thought of the Communist Party as the church, which is fascinating to me. And I never thought about giving up your ideals, giving up your values when you go make a change like that, a life change like that. My my experience with communists, uh, I had spent some time with folks at the Revolution Bookstore. I don't know if you know that that group. They're Marxists. I'm sorry, they're uh, Maoists. And they're the most closed-minded people, uh, second only maybe to the evangelicals, but very, very resistant to a new idea or an idea that conflicted with their ideology. Is that what you uh, experienced? That's actually a very generous way of putting it, yes. There's a wonderful story. Uh, Paul Robeson's son was interviewed, and the interviewer said uh, to him, um, was your father aware of the excesses under Stalin? And Ropes had responded to the son, uh, those weren't excesses, those were crimes. And yes, my father knew what was going on because many of his Russian friends were Jewish intellectuals, and they were all disappearing. And everybody knew, including my father, that they were being arrested, they were being tortured, they were being sent to concentration camps, if not executed. And my father decided that the fight for black equality, the fight for African liberation was so important that he was willing to over overlook these aberrations. So, yeah, it's amazing wow. what you can do if you have a belief in white supremacy, 
if you have a belief in, conversely, communism or whatever your belief system is, it could lead you. I have to be reading a book that I love, The Ape That Thought He Was Human. In the book, he's talking about how love is a love is a feature that is built into our hardwiring. And he's saying that not only can love make drive you blind, it can drive you crazy. And true belief is in the same category. Yeah, very interesting, isn't it? So your unique perspective, which I find fascinating, our, our conversations I always enjoy, your perspective on politics is extremely interesting to me, to, to both Ken and me. Your latest article, and I encourage everyone listening to read it. It's excellent. It's called Democracy in Peril. Yeah, it's it's Well, it's a well they have read. to go to Utopia USA. Yeah. Ah, well, they got to sign uh, up. Okay. Well, well yeah, yeah. I, I think they That's... can read it without signing up, but I'm not sure. But they can sign up, read the article, okay. and then unsign up. <laughs> sign down. Good marketing plan. Sign there. down. Yeah. yeah, there you go. But what's your take on where the country is headed right I now? I think our country is heading in exactly the same direction as Germany did in the 1930s. Two thirds of the people wow. voted against Hitler. And by the way, the two thirds who voted against Hitler were much more liberal than we are in America. One third, one half of the two thirds were communists, and the other th- group were social democrats. But within a few short years, Hitler was able to usurp the powers of the government, literally dismiss parliament, and create an absolute dictatorship. And he was able to do it because deep down the Germans had bought into two foundational beliefs. One was German superiority, and the other was Jews were criminals, the enemy, and an inferior subhuman people. And with that foundational value, Hitler was able, step by step, first he got rid of the communists, then he got rid of the socialists, then he got rid of the trade unionists, then he got rid of the gays, and then he got rid of actually a lot of, how would I describe, liberal Catholic theologians. And during all of that time, first he simply said, okay, Jews can't go to school. Then, okay, they can't be in the legal profession. Okay, they can't do this. And these were all a series of small incremental steps that by 1939 wound up with Jews being put in concentration camps, homosexuals being uh, executed. Actually, even retarded people they they got rid of. uh, And Hitler going to war. And I am very much afraid that America is following that same slippery slope. Our foundational belief is American exceptionalism. We are the smartest, the friendliest, the most open, the most democratic people in the world. And whites are the most superior. And their evidence tells them that blacks are a subhuman race. So I see us going down the same slippery uh, slope. Whoa. But the one big difference that some people point out, people like Noam Chomsky, will say, yes, but the fascists had an ideology, Mussolini, Hitler, they, Franco, they had an, uh, an ideology, a system of beliefs, whereas Trump just seems to have whatever strikes him, whatever tickles his fancy, 
being the narcissist that he is, the, the self-absorbed person that he is, but everything revolves around him more so than a party or an ideology. Do you see it that way or do you disagree? Well, as far as Trump goes, yes. I remember I used to teach something called transactional analysis, which was really Jungian theory. And it said there's an ego, there's a parental ego, a realistic one, and a childlike one. And the question is, which one is in control? And of course, you go in and out of all of them. Trump is usually in his child ego, impulsive, erratic, whatever. But his basic foundational belief is racist. Don't forget, this was a guy, we had five youngsters in New York arrested for raping a white woman. They were innocent, and everybody who knew anything about it knew they were innocent, but they signed confessions because they were tortured, and they were 16 years old. And Trump took out a full-page ad saying they should be killed and executed. Eventually, DNA cleared all of them, and Trump said, no, they're still guilty. So this guy is racist to the core. What I wanted to say in response to your question, I think the power elite, the deep state that we on the left have attacked more than Trump is, uh, I think they'll throw him under the bus in a moment. The, the German military and the German intelligentsia thought they were going to use Hitler. They couldn't do it. They couldn't tame him. I think our power elite will get rid of Trump. They'll throw him under the bus and we'll continue down the same slippery slope without the lunacy uh, of Trump pulling it off. So how do you see this, this election unfolding? All things being equal, I think this time there are enough people to actually defeat Trump. I was one who predicted Trump would win four years ago. But I don't know that there'll even be an election. If there is an election, and if Trump wins, uh, the, the scenario I laid out will take place quite rapidly. If Trump loses, and as I say, the power will throw him under the bus and Biden is elected, and assuming that the Democrats have a sweep, they win more seats in the House, they recapture the Senate, and Biden and Kamala are the president and vice president, I think you will see a new version of the Civil War. The Civil War was fought on a battlefield of clearly defined territory. When the South lost, the Republicans moved in with a Republican army and set up Reconstruction. And for about 10 or 12 years, through sheer force of arms, Blacks got elected to political office, including the Senate of the United States. They passed laws in favor of public education and whatever. And during that period, the KKK and other white supremacist groups waged an unrelenting war of terror against uh, not only black people, but their white allies, the carpetbaggers, among others. Eventually, they cut a deal, and the... The Democrats let a Republican, I think it was Tilden or Hayes, get elected, and he agreed to take the troops out of the South. And the moment he did that, the white supremacists were able to reinstate the nearest equivalent thing to slavery, it was called Jim Crow, through terror. Now, terror required a lot of effort, but they killed maybe two or 3,000 black people. I've seen numbers of 5,000, but some of the lynchings were white people and whatever. What I think you'll see this time is a non-territorial civil war. I would think you will see all of the Ku Klux, type, Ku Klux Klan types, wherever they are, 
killing and murdering. They'll kill nine people in a church. They'll blow up the Oklahoma City building. They'll blow up and kill uh, the Jews in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, in the daycare center in, in California. They'll assassinate doctors who uh, want to offer abortions. The killing will go on unabated. And the question is whether or not people will see this as systemic or each killing will be an aberration. Each killing is, well, that's one individual loader. That's one individual unhappy people person. And I don't know that even if Biden and Harris are able to say, no, this is systemic, white terrorism is real, and we have to end it. I don't know that they'll be able to end it short of doing what literally Castro had to do in Cuba, what Stalin did in Russia. I don't think that those American people, and I think they're in the majority, who have as a foundational belief, America is exceptional. Whites are exceptional. White supremacy and white civilization have brought us to where we are, and we have to defend it at all costs. We are at war with the blacks, the poor, the Hispanics, whoever, gays. They're not going to go away. We're going to see, again, thousands of killings. And again, if Trump is elected, we're going to see thousands of people in jail and concentration camps and disappearing. If Biden is elected, I don't know what will happen, except it won't be pretty. Jack, I've been waiting to ask this question because I know it's foremost on everyone's mind. Uh, Just yesterday, we lost the great light of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'd like to ask how you think that loss is going to affect us. I think it won't have too much of an effect on a day-to-day basis, but it's a historic loss in terms of the legacy of liberal and progressive thinking. She is not going to be replaced. This was a brilliant intellect. And as long as she was living, she was living proof of the subjugation of women. I mean, she graduated law school. Nobody would give her a job in a law firm. She was like every black person who was the first one. So I think that if Trump is able to nominate somebody in this interim period, and it looks to me like he probably can't do it before the election, but if he loses and the Senate shifts, they might try to do it in the uh, lame duck session, which will really provoke aggravation. But if he's able to put in his replacement, you'll probably have a six to three conservative majority. And let me digress for a moment. The court was always a force for reaction. The Warren court, which approved uh, or disapproved of segregation, that liberal court was an aberration. The Supreme Court gave us uh, the Dredcott decision. The Supreme Court of the 1930s overturned every Roosevelt New Deal uh, law that it could. So with a five to four conservative majority, there's a lot of flexibility for a Roberts or whoever to switch sides on a particular issue. A six to three conservative majority means the Supreme Court will be a conservative bastion forever. And the roles will be reversed. The left will now fight like hell through the legislative branch. And the right will fight like hell through the judicial branch. So we're just going to see an interesting reversal of roles. But the key thing is that the fundamental policy of American people isn't going to change. Well, 
we were talking before before we were recording a little bit about the division in America, and I I read for you some of the results of this Pew Research Center's polling in mid August, and they broke it out in terms of Biden supporters and Trump supporters, and the Biden supporters top ten issues for this election. Number one, health care. Number two, the pandemic. Number three, race relations. Then the economy, climate change, Supreme Court, economic inequality, foreign policy, guns, and then violent crime and immigration tied for 10th. The Trump supporters, number one, the economy. Number two, violent crime. Number three and four, immigration and Supreme Court tied. Number five, guns. Six, foreign policy. Seven, health care. Eight, abortion. Abortion wasn't even on the Biden supporters list. Number nine, the coronavirus pandemic. And number 10, economic inequality. War wasn't on either list. But to, what was striking to me was the difference in priorities. That the, the Trump supporters, number two was violent crime. And they weren't talking about the violent crime you were just talking about. They're talking about the rioters or the violent protesters in Portland and places like that. Right. How do you see the division in our country playing out in this scenario that you're describing? How do you see, you're talking about a civil war. Is that the basis for what you call the civil war, this this split in our society? It's certainly a major part of it. But let me go back to your concept of talking about crime. When I was growing up, I'm guessing that 80 or 90 percent of all people in jail were white. Now, that's not true in the South. In the South, they were arresting people for vagrancy because they were using them for slave labor, which is allowed by the Constitution if you're in jail. But crime when I was growing up was uh, Jesse James. What's his name? Al Capone. Al Capone. Well, no, I won't go be. It was all of the Sundance kids, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Al Capone represented a foreign crime, meaning Italians, the mafia. Oh, okay. Uh, but whites did not really experience crime from blacks. Blacks were so segregated in the South and in the North that there was virtually no black on white crime. The mafia introduced crime, but not street mugging not holding up individual people. They extorted from store owners, from businessmen, and uh, from people who fell prey to them because they had gambling habits or whatever. Blacks virtually could not attack a white person. Once we had integration, one of the unexpected side effects was liberating black people to move in a white population, but not liberating them to earn a decent living, not liberating them to uh, be able to do anything. And there was even a division in crime. Blacks committed low-level crimes. Whites committed high-level crimes, embezzlement, stock fraud. So whites, for the first time, became confronted with black people attacking them. Now, only a small minority of black people attacked only a small minority of white people. But racism is so deep that uh, the way the press played it up, the way the power elite played it up, you know, one black person attacked a white person and it made headlines for 50 weeks. And it was them. You know, it became 
them doing all of those things. So there was a different shift in the perception of crime. And in fact, any time blacks moved into a neighborhood, and they had to fight to move in, and nobody mentioned the fact that blacks were forced to live in restricted areas. They were forced to buy housing that was decaying at an exorbitant price that they couldn't get bank loans except at higher interest rates. But the minute blacks started moving into a white neighborhood, they started moving out. And you could pass all the laws you wanted about integration and segregation was a crime. Once a neighborhood became, and people argue about the amount, I think it was 25%. Once a neighborhood became 25% minority, every white moved out within a period of five years, and the neighborhood became totally segregated. And we've seen this pattern over and over again. I experienced that as a kid in my neighborhood in Baltimore. That's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. We had blockbusters. They would buy a home at an exorbitant price to break the block, to break the neighborhood, and then the white people, white flight, would desert the neighborhood and the real estate prices would drop and more black people would move in. And that's that was a pattern throughout the city. It was it was all you know, incredible racism. And my family, of course, didn't move. We stayed for whatever reason. But you see this being played out today in our, our segregated school systems throughout the country, especially in New York. I married my wife in Flint, Michigan, and we came to New York in 55, and we settled in an area called Cretona Park. It was a Jewish area, all white, and my wife happens to be black, and there was one other interracial couple in our building, but except for those two people, there were no blacks anywhere to be found, and I belonged to a group of people my friends, I, I would go with his wife, who's white, and he would go with some other white uh, a woman. And we would go to an apartment using the name and the employment history and every fact of a black family, right down to everything, income, whatever, and we would rent the apartment in their name. And the black family would move in the next day, and the landlords went berserk. To tell you that they tried to run us out of town... And we integrated maybe five families during this process. And a community of, I would guess, fifty to 100,000 people within five years moved out and became entirely black and or Puerto Rican. And when you watch this happen, there was a Jewish YWCA. It moved. And, and laughingly, what we said is we could tell how quick the changeover took place. Because when I moved in, they picked up the garbage every day. When the neighborhood was 50% black, they picked it up two or three times a week. When it became 100% black, once a week if lucky. And by the way, that whole neighborhood moved two places, to Massapequa and various counties out in Long Island, and to, they built a whole new thing called Co-op City. All right. 50,000 people, and 50,000 people, Jewish people primarily, but not exclusively, moved out of primarily the Bronx, it was Jews and Italians, moved out of the Bronx up into Co-op City. And, and Jews were, I, I, blacks weren't allowed in. Right. Blacks weren't allowed into Mesopiqua. Oh my gosh. Blacks, blacks weren't allowed into Levittown, which was built with government funds. Getting back to the election for a second, uh, this is a fascinating conversation, but I just want to get back to, you were talking about what will happen if, if Trump wins, if Biden wins, 
if Biden wins and Trump stands down and and relinquishes power, let's say he's just tired of it or whatever, will there be real change? Or were we going to be mired in a, in some kind of conflict and the Democrats are really not going to do anything new? There will be real legislative change. There will be lots of progressive laws enacted. But life beneath the surface will go on very much the same as it can be. Because if people try to enforce those laws which people in America don't like, they're not going to get enforced and they're going to be met with a particularly American brand of violence. Uh, now, America is different from Germany because Germany was homogenous. You know, there were 60 million Germans and 600,000 Jews and a handful of gypsies or Roma. America is about 30 or 40 percent non-white, non-Aryan, if you will. That's a significant difference. The Soviet Union is the same thing. The Soviet Union was very heterogeneous. And again, the great Russians thought they were superior to all of the Muslim countries and so on. But the fact that they had so many non-Russians made their transition to a totally great Russian state difficult. By the way, Putin is living proof. What they did is they finally threw out all the non-Russians and their population went from 250 million to 150 million. All the Muslims are now stands, you know, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, whatever. So they can't do that in America, but they might try. And what do you see the end game to look like? Where, where are we headed? Are we headed to an autocratic government? Or you say democracy in peril. Do you see this as the beginning of the end of our experiment as a republic? Well, I think we may very well keep the formal trappings of democracy. We will have free elections. 98% of the people will have free speech. In the 1930s, there was a Dies on American Committee. I don't know how many, but maybe a couple of thousand progressives, some communists, some not, were kicked out of teaching positions, kicked out of uh, influence-making positions. By the 1950s, with the McCarthy period, you had the Dies Committee on steroids, and now some people went to jail, and some people were physically assaulted, and a lot of people lost their jobs. I think if Trump wins, you'll see the McCarthy period on steroids. You will see a wholesale purging of progressive teachers who are allegedly Marxists, whatever. You'll see people being imprisoned, going on trial, but very shortly, perhaps not even going on trial, just disappearing from public view. And again, 98% of the people will have freedom of speech. They won't lose their jobs. And they'll put their head down, and they won't see it because they're not told it, and they don't want to see it. And how long that nightmare period will last, I have no idea. I have a theory, but no idea. But what's interesting is that you hear the same predictions from Trump and the Republicans saying if Biden wins, the socialists are going to take over and destroy America. It's really the same argument. Yes, it is, but there is no moral equivalency. Right. The Biden people want to have, as do the progressives, a decent life for everybody. The people who are supporting Trump and those people, they want to love thy neighbor, but thy neighbor means white people like them. 
Well, how do you see the oligarchs fitting into all this? Well, I think the oligarchs have been running the country for a long time. I think C. Wright Mills pegged it in 1956 when he said, in effect, there are three forms of government, the Supreme Court, the legislative branch, and the uh, corporate branch. And he said the legislative branch has been reduced to impotence. It doesn't matter what they do. That's not how life is being decided. And I think that, in a sense, Congress for a long time, and this is a self-inflicted wound, is almost like Japanese kabuki theater. Congress decided it didn't want to have to pass laws about ending the war in Vietnam. And they were only too happy to pass those things off to the commander-in-chief and give him the power. So they abdicated power, and uh, now they're paying the price. And the oligarchs will be satisfied if they have a, you know, a Trump authoritarian government in place, as long as they get what they want, which is reduced regulation and reduced taxes and opportunity to make more money? Well, you know, I can't get through a sentence before I change my mind or see a contradiction. But <laughs> Trump is calling the deep state a menace to our country, and we are outraged. The left fought the deep state for, for 50 years. The left wanted us to get out of NATO. Trump wants to get out of NATO. We're unhappy. The left fought all of the military interventions by the CIA, the covert ones and the overt ones. We blamed the CIA for Chile, for Argentina, for Guyana, for Nicaragua. We opposed the wars. In we saw all of this as the work of the deep state. And now we're all sitting around asking the deep state to protect us from Trump. Well, I think they will protect us from Trump. But I don't think they'll protect us from economic inequality. I don't think they'll protect us from intervening in the affairs of countries all over the world to maintain American economic dominance. So, no, I don't see any change. They don't, they don't need Trump. And the difference between America and Germany is Hitler turned the table on the industrialists. They thought they were going to use him. Hitler turned the table, and he got rid of them. He used them. I don't think that'll happen in America. Our deep state will handle Trump. He won't handle them. Jack, these are fascinating ideas. I got to say, I love important, important ideas, ideas uh, which is what we're about. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It's, it's always a pleasure. And I'm looking forward to you coming back and, and doing another podcast with us right away. Hey, I'm, I'm 90 years old. You only got up to year 23. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we got to, oh, so we could do another, another 50, 70 years. If, Is that what you're saying? <laughs> if, if, if I don't get Alzheimer's or memory lapse, yes. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're quite welcome. Thanks for coming. Ken, what are your takeaways? Well, Steve, I'd like to start with a couple of very general observations. First is Jack's overall style in approaching the world. He's what I call thoughtful in the best sense of that word. He's a lifelong learner, always seeking a greater understanding of the people and the world around him. And when you couple that with the fact that the man is 90 years old and still, as my parents used to say, as sharp as a tack, one sees that this is a person to be reckoned with. A real force of nature. That's first. 
Yep, I I agree. I completely agree. You know, I like your phrase that you used earlier today, the institution that is Jack Moscow. Yeah, he really is, isn't he? Yeah. Second, he's managed to keep a lighthearted view of things, a sense of humor, but even more than that, with all his accumulated knowledge, he doesn't ever take himself too seriously. Near the end of this interview, he says, I can't even finish a sentence without changing my mind or seeing the inherent contradictions. That's not just humor, it's self-deprecating humor. And I think that's a sign of a strong mind, the opposite of a narcissist. Self-deprecating people are fun to talk to because you know they're not going to be constantly making the conversation about them. And Jack is fun to talk to. Yeah, he really is. Uh, I just saw on Reddit that a new study finds that right-wing authoritarians aren't very funny people. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, duh. Yeah, (laughs) who'd have thought? Anyway, Jack spoke about leaving the church. He was raised in the Church of Communism with its sacred texts, infallible leaders, and heresies. And you might remember Ernest Becker wrote about communism the same way, calling it a religion that gave its members purpose, meaning, and a defense against death anxiety similar to traditional religion. That's right. I found, yeah, yeah I, and it, it, it's, it's all very interesting how this ties together. I found Jack's analysis very penetrating when he remarked that he gained an understanding that leaving the communist church was easier than leaving a right-wing church, like the KKK or the John Birch Society, because the white supremacist had to adopt a whole new way of thinking. And I just loved his this aphorism of his, true belief can make you blind and drive you crazy. It was fascinating hearing how integration worked in the mid-20th century. There were blockbusters. You said you experienced this firsthand in Baltimore. Yeah, I even remember the name of the real estate company that was famous for blockbusting in the city back then, Wraith, Wraith, and Wraith. I remember it, I guess, because white people like my family and neighbors were so afraid of them. And of course, it was inevitable that someone would integrate our neighborhood. The white families fled, just as Jack described the process. And my brother, sister, and I grew up in an integrated neighborhood and school. And amazingly, it was not a problem, at least not for us kids. We all got new friends. It was great. Wow. I forget how much older than me you actually are <laughs> to, to, have, to have been through this firsthand. I just read about it in the books, you know? Well, yeah. And I, well, Baltimore is a lot different from Connecticut, too. Yeah. Yeah. True. So we were talking yesterday about all the isms, racism, sexism, ageism, and how human beings come by these tendencies honestly. At some point in human evolution, they served a function that favored their Darwinian survival or else they wouldn't have been so consistently present. As you said, they're hardwired into us almost at our level of DNA, and we have to exert effort to overcome them. But we all know that overcome them, we must. We're smarter now. We don't need that anymore. According to Jack, Nazis had their foundational beliefs in Aryan superiority. And the American foundational belief is American exceptionalism. Whites are the most superior. Blacks are a subhuman race. Trump's basic foundational belief is racist. I would say 
that for Trump, it is xenophobia, which includes anyone not in his tribe, black, brown, or white. I think it's important to note that these are unconscious processes we're talking about. I know some people who make racist jokes, claiming that it's political humor, not racism, and that they're not racist. It's hard for people to see what is beneath the surface sometimes. That's true. Jack really tells it like it is, with minimal concessions being made to political correctness. Hmm. He paints a fairly bleak picture of our world, doesn't he? Yeah. When you asked him about it, he compared our time now to that time leading up to the rise of Hitler in Nazi Germany. He said, we are on a very slippery slope. And he made predictions for both outcomes of the election, a Trump victory or a Biden victory, and neither one paints a very rosy picture. Now, Jack's darkest predictions concern if there is an election, and he's not convinced it's a certainty, the outcome will involve bloodshed. If Trump stays in power, either by winning or in a coup, we'll see Nazi and communist-type oppression. And if Biden wins, there'll be a new civil war. Either way, according to Jack, we're going to see thousands of killings. He's pretty pessimistic about the Supreme Court, too, saying it was always a force for reaction, which is his way of saying reactionaries. He says the fundamental policy of the American people isn't going to change. And he's, I, I, he's probably right. It'll take several generations. Yeah, no doubt. I enjoyed Jack's way of seeing that history has a way of flipping, like his story about Earl Broder. He said, we're all sitting around asking the deep state to protect us from Trump. He says they will protect us from Trump, but not from economic inequality, intervening in countries all over the world to maintain American economic dominance. No change. They don't need Trump. Unlike Nazi Germany in the 30s, our deep state will handle Trump just fine. Yeah, and I I think Jack and Ernest Becker would see eye to eye when he talked about crime being committed by them, the form of othering. Yeah, them. Right, them. It's othering at its most pernicious. And Jack points out that America is 60% white. I looked it up, and the country is 60.1% white alone, not Hispanic or Latino. That's the category they, they use. As you and I have talked about it, that's a changing demographic. In 50 years, white will be a plurality, but not the majority versus non-white. Time's running out for American white supremacy. To my way of thinking, white supremacy is a meme that is fighting for its survival in our culture. That's meme in the original Dawkins sense, not the pop culture meaning. White supremacy's main opponent, the white supremacy meme, main opponent is the belief that all men are created equal. A meme made famous by a deeply conflicted 18th century American white supremacist named Thomas Jefferson. In my opinion, the only way to defeat white supremacy in the coming struggle is to defeat radical economic inequality, giving white working class men and women sufficient economic strength and stability 
that they will no longer need the fantasy of racial superiority based on the accident of skin color. Makes sense. Yeah. Becker explains conflict. It applies universally. The other represents the most danger that most people have ever faced. Steve, all important ideas. You're right about that. And listen, folks, don't forget to check out Dispatches from the Planet Utopia. It's Jack Moscow at his best. It is funny. Yep. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the hub important ideas. We are 100% listener supported. Thank you for listening to the hub for important ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. Stay well.